me begin by opening with prayer. Lord, we are your people, the sheep of your pasture. Lord, would you feed us through your word this morning that we might find nourishment, that we might find delight in you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, on November 9th, 1938, Jacob Weiner went to bed early because he was eager to wake up the next morning and take his last exam to finalize him becoming a Hebrew teacher. But he didn't get to stay asleep till morning, though. That night, he was awoken by a loud noise, and then Nazis, dressed as civilians, barged in his room. Their dorm was ransacked, their synagogue burned, and he and other men in the dorm were lined up outside, sped upon, shouted out, and taken into custody. These terrible events didn't just happen to Jacob, though. They happened across Germany. And there was a massive attack that night by Nazi stormtroopers, the SS and the Hitler Youth. And while this happened, civilians and police watched on, did nothing, some even joining in and some cheering. Later reports showed that on that night, thousands of Jewish shops were burned and destroyed. Almost 200 synagogues were set on fire. 20,000 Jews were arrested and 36 were killed. November 9th, 1938 became infamously known as Kristallnacht, or the Night of Broken Glass, because the cost of broken glass eluded Jewish shops. Well, there had been, hence there had been signs of persecution of Jews in Germany before this, but this night launched the clear governmental support of the Nazi government for persecuting Jews and really beginning the Holocaust. Now, this was not the first time in history that there has been a group or a person who has wanted to annihilate, to remove God's people. And others, though maybe not wanting to destroy God's people, wanted to marginalize them or persecute them. And this morning in our passage in Esther, we come to one of those times. And in times like that, God's people, they can grow discouraged. They can grow disillusioned and even doubt, where is God in this crisis? What is going on? Is there even any hope anymore? Now, as much as I'm aware, none of you this morning are facing that level of persecution. Definitely not death threats or the threat of your life being taken for your faith in Christ. But maybe in other ways, your life seems to be spinning out of control. Maybe there's legal issues that you never thought you'd have to face. And they are now confronting. Maybe a loved one has turned against you or your children in your house seems out of control. Maybe death and disease are ravaging ones you love. Or maybe you look at our country and you think, 46 years of supporting abortion. Or you look at our country and you think, we've gone from approving to, from accepting to approving to now applauding relationships that God deems immoral. And you fear as you see rising animosity and rising legal actions against Christians. And you ask, where is God in this crisis? What's going on? Is there any hope? Now we're at our second week in looking at the book of Esther. And if you missed a week, you might be scratching your head going, did I miss 15 weeks in Luke in that couple weeks that I wasn't here? Well, the next verse in Luke is chapter 9, verse 51. And there it says, Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem. There's a clear change in the book, a clear transition point, because in that point in Luke on, we're going to see Jesus going towards Jerusalem, towards the cross. And so this was a great point to take a little break and look at this book and consider, 
How do we live in such times as this? And last week, as we began the book, we noted that there was a king of a great empire, Ahasuerus, and he was trying to throw a great feast because he wanted to go attack Greece and he wanted to get the support of his men and the army. But while he was throwing this party, his wife refused to come to show her beauty and he was embarrassed and he deposed her. Then in the next chapter, we saw that Ahasuerus made Esther, also known as Hadassah, the queen in her place. She was the orphan of uh, Jewish parents and then her nephew, sorry, her cousin, Mordecai raised her. Mordecai then instructed her, when you become the queen, don't let them know of your Jewish identity. And today, we will see three different scenes in this story. And then we're going to conclude with seeing a major overarching truth about God and how we should respond. If you have a bulletin on the back, you can kind of see the outline of the passage. First, we'll see in Esther 2, 19-23 that there's saving the king but no reward. Then there's hatred of God's people responding to the decree in Esther 4. And then God's control. And lastly, well, how does that impact us? So first, though, if we will look at Esther 2, 19 through 23, we'll see that there is a saving of the king, but no reward. So Esther 2, beginning in verse 19, it reads, Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthon and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. It was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So here Esther 2 ends showing that Mordecai had an official position. The king's gate is where they would have done the business. And Mordecai is sitting there most likely because he has a royal office, a royal function in the government. And while he's there, he overhears these two men. They have a plot to assassinate the king. Well, you, he could sit there and go, well, I don't really like this king either. I'm in his exiled land. And yet he goes and tells Esther, who tells the king they discover this was a real plot. And the king is saved. And so Mordecai is probably waiting. Well, what's going to happen next? Because the custom for Persian kings was to give large rewards to those people who helped the king out. And yet, nothing happens to Mordecai. If you were reading this originally, there would be no chapter or verse. So the next thing you would read, which you would expect to be, and Mordecai received, doesn't talk about Mordecai receiving anything. It talks about this man Haman receiving rewards. It's a complete shock. It's a complete, well, what's going on? If I'm doing good, why am I not being rewarded for it? And we wonder the same things at times. If I'm working overtime and no one else is, but I don't get a bonus, why am I going to keep doing it? If I'm doing all this work, I'm doing what's right, and everyone else is cheating and they're getting away with it, why am I going to keep doing what's just and right? And our actions sometimes show that we go with that. Well, I'm not going to keep doing what's just and right because I'm not getting rewarded for it. And this morning, we're going to see through this story, these stories in Esther, that there is a reward. It will be noticed, but not necessarily in the time frame or by the people that we want. 
But for now, the story focuses on this character, Haman, and his hatred of God's people. And we see that in chapter 3. So if you look down in Esther chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. And after these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they don't keep the king's laws, so that it's not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it be pleasing to the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I'll pay ten thousand talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month, and an edict was written to the king's satraps, and to the governors over all the provinces, and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script, and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus, and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Well, at the beginning in verse 1, we saw that Haman is described as an Agagite, which makes him a descendant of Agag, who was an Amalekite king. If you read in Exodus 17, you'll see that the Amalekites attacked the Israelites unnecessarily in the desert. Because of this, God promised that there would be perpetual war between the Amalekites, also known as the Agagites, and the Jews. And so for someone who's steeped in the Old Testament story, as they read and they see Haman the Agagite, all of a sudden they're alerted that there is trouble, that there is something about to happen. It's foreshadowing. And the term Agagite actually became used by Jews to describe any perpetual enemy. It might be the way we sometimes use the term Nazi for someone who's controlling or domineering. They won't give you the remote they always want to have, and you go, come on, you Nazi remote, let someone else have a turn. Well, they don't hold to Nazi philosophy, but we use that term just like Jews use Agagite, someone who's their enemy. And so here, the author's foreshadowing this guy, Haman, 
he is an enemy of the Jews. Well, here, Haman is promoted to second command, and everyone is commanded by the king to honor and bow before him. But, for some reason, Mordecai won't do this. We're not told why. Even people begin asking him, saying, Haman, Mordecai, why aren't you doing this? But he won't answer. Now, I mentioned this last week, and I'll mention it again here. Old Testament stories can be very challenging to understand. You know, 1 Peter 3.15 says, Be ready to give a defense for the hope that is in you. Well, obviously Mordecai didn't know 1 Peter 3.15, but this seems like that moment where he could speak up, where they go, Mordecai, why won't you bow down? And he says, well, because there's only one God, and I only bow down to the true and living God. But Mordecai doesn't even say that. So why is Mordecai refusing? Well, I don't really know. Some people say he's being faithful to God, but then he doesn't say it. And then also, Abraham, he did the exact same thing in Genesis 23 to the Hittites, and he's not condemned for that. As well, he'll later become second in command, and Ahasuerus would have let no one get that high if they wouldn't bow the knee to him. So some people say, well, it must be because he's just stubborn. Or maybe there's racial animosity. But at the end of it, I think we somewhat have to raise our hands and say, I don't know. You know, sometimes in these Old Testament stories, we're not told this was right or wrong. Even last week, as I shared some of my perspectives on things, afterwards, Keith and I had a discussion, and he shared some different perspectives. Some different ways you could maybe read the same things. And he had some really good points. And at times like this, it's helpful to remember a phrase. In the Bible, the main things are the plain things. And the plain things are the main things. You know, what's plain for us to know, what's main for us to know is made clear to us. And the clear main thing throughout Esther is God's actions. Are we always 100% certain of whether this person did what was right? I'm not, but we don't have to get bogged down and worried about that because the main thing is that God is always doing what's right. God is always in control. And the main things in Scripture that we need to know are salvation, who God is, what Scripture is, they're very plain. It's not left for, well, that's my opinion, that's, well, I don't know. There's a lot of confusing opinions. The main things are plain for us to understand. And here, again, the main thing is that God and His plans are clearly going forward. Well, Haman, he learns that Mordecai won't bow the knee, and so he checks. Is this really true? And when he sees he won't, he's infuriated. But he won't just pour his wrath out on Mordecai. He's going to save it for all the Jews. And so Haman goes and he casts purr, or they're like dice. He goes and casts them with probably magicians to figure out, on what day should I enact my plan? So the date is set, the 13th day, 12th of the 12th month, which you added up as 11 months later. Well, now that he knows the day he wants to do this, Haman goes and he talks to King Ahasuerus. And he uses the classic way people do this. He gives truth, he gives a little bit of untruth, and then he has bold-faced lies. The truth, well, there's people spread throughout your land. They're distinct. The half-truth, they have different rules than us. Yeah, that's halfway true. The complete lie, they're rebellious. Well, that's completely untrue. You know, fake news is nothing new. If Ahasuerus had done his research, it wasn't that long before that there was another Jew who rose high in commands named Daniel. And Daniel, when they wanted to get rid of him, what did they have to do? Well, we have to come up with a law 
that goes against God's law because otherwise he completely obeys what the king says. The Jews are not rebellious people to the king. This is an outright bold-faced lie. And yet Haman here just tells it. And the king does not research into it. And not only does Haman tell this lie, but then he gives a little bribe. I'll even give you 10,000 talents. Now, King Ahasuerus' father, we know his annual budget was 14,500 talents. So if you do some quick mental math, he's promising more than two-thirds of the annual national budget. That's a lot of money that he's promising King Ahasuerus. And as well, Ahasuerus has just come back in the last few years from losing to Greece, and his treasuries are depleted. Well, Ahasuerus, he foolishly listens to this. He gives Haman his royal signet ring and tells him, go do whatever you want. You can have my full authority a blessing. You know, the money is too good to pass up. Now, you might be thinking, whoa, 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 whoa. Back up the basic reading skills. Verse 11 says, it says, do with the money what you wish. He didn't take the money. Well, actually, this is their cultural way of being polite. You may have read in Genesis 23, when Abraham's wife, Sarah, dies and he wants to go buy a field. And so he's talking with the men and the men go, well, the field's worth 400 shekels of silver or whatever. And they, he goes, well, what is that between us and you? Just go bury your wife. Well, Abraham doesn't then go, oh, well, he doesn't really want the money, so I'm just going to go. He then measures out the money and buys it. It's their way of saying, I don't want to be money grubbing, so I'm going to act like, oh, no, the money's not really that big a deal. But then it does get paid. You know, we see not just through that illusion there, but also when Mordecai explains to Esther what happens, he tells of the money. Then when Esther actually confronts the king and talks to him about this, she says, we have been sold, which gives the implication that actually King Ahasuerus did take the money. Well, then the king, with kingly sanction, Haman writes out this decree that this annihilation is going to take place on the 13th day of the 12th month, and he sends it on the 13th day of the first month. Now, you may have noted the brutal nature of this decree, because verse 13 tells us, it says they are to destroy, to kill, and annihilate all, even women and children. Now, I'm not sure how you kill someone after you've destroyed them. And after you've killed and destroyed them, I don't know how you annihilate them. But all of these things are supposed to happen. And I think basically what it's showing is Haman's utter hatred, his vileness. that he, He's just overflowing with ways, I want them gone, I hate them. Showing us the depth of Haman's hatred. Not only that, they get to plunder the Jewish goods. Well then, there's this sad and ugly contrast. Because as the city gets thrown into confusion, all the Jews wondering what's going to happen, Haman and Ahasuerus sit down to have a couple drinks. You know, a clearer picture could not be given of callous, uncaring, foolish leaders. You know, Ahasuerus was just duped by his right-hand man, and now all he cares about is, what's next for drinks? More, Haman has just written a decree to write off from the face of the earth a group of people. Let's figure out what we can eat tonight. You know, their city is in chaos, but they don't care because... Life is going well for them. And hatred of God's people is not merely for Jews, though. As we read earlier in the middle of the service, John 15, 20, 
A servant is not greater than his master, Jesus said. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. For a little over two centuries, Christians in the United States have largely enjoyed benefits to the fact that we've been Christians, not persecution. But as many of you are aware, that's slowly changing. Recently, the city of San Antonio blocked Chick-fil-A from putting a Chick-fil-A in the airport because Chick-fil-A has given to some really heinous organizations. They've given to the organization of the Salvation Army, Fellowship of Christian Athletes, and a home that cares for troubled youth. We would hate for such a business to give fried chicken in our airports. It would be a horrible thing. Not too many months ago, Vice President Pence and his wife were severely maligned, and many even called for him to resign because his wife was teaching at a Christian school that was teaching traditional Christian values on sexuality. But no longer is that fine for her to do. That's now horrible. Something that if you teach that, you really shouldn't be allowed to have public office in some people's eyes, and really you should be slandered for. And while this opposition is real, it's nothing compared to what other Christians have dealt with throughout time and even today. Easter Sunday... There were coordinated attacks in Sri Lanka, churches where bombs went off and over 250 Christians were killed. This year, China has renewed their arresting and intimidating of pastors and church members. And I could go on for hours telling of Christians even today who are under the threat of persecution, beatings, and even death because of their faithfulness to Christ. Yohamans still exist. And there are still bold-faced lies told by people who hate God's people. Well, how should we respond? Well, in Esther 4, we see how Mordecai and Esther respond. So Esther 4, responding to the decree, beginning in verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. And he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate. For no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, of fasting and weeping and lamenting. And many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he may take off his sackcloth. But he would not accept him. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to a tender and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her, and command her to go to the king to beg his favor, and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak, and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants, and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes into the king, inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter, so that he may live. But as for me, I haven't been called to come to the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. 
Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you've not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to go to reply to Mordecai. Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther ordered him. So here, Mordecai responds to this decree by doing the culturally appropriate way of mourning. He didn't put on black clothes like we might. Instead, he tore his clothes. He put on sackcloth. He put ashes on his head. And he starts crying out, loudly and not just him all jews when they hear this respond in a similar manner you know this irreversible decree with the king's authority the king's name his signet ring has been given it appears there is no hope for deliverance this edict is irreversible but when esther finds out what's going on with mordecai she sends him clothes you know she like ahasuerus other women is trapped in the palace she's not allowed to come out So she is unaware, and so there begins this back and forth between the servants going to Mordecai and the servants and going back to Esther and letting them know what's going on. And so Mordecai refuses these clothes because, no, I want to be in the symbols of mourning. I can't wear normal clothes when an edict for the Jews' death has been put in place. And then Mordecai sends back. He gives the copy of the decree. He says what's happened. He even tells how much money has been promised. And then he also says, he commands Esther to go and plead with the king. Well, so Esther replies back, it's against the law. It's illegal. I can't just go to the king. I might die. Not only that, it's a little impractical because he hasn't called me in 30 days. I don't know what he's thinking about me. And if I go in, that's not going to work. Well, Mordecai, he responds back. Look, don't think you're safe just because you're the queen. Just because you're in the palace doesn't mean someone with the hatred of Haman isn't going to find out that you're a Jew as well. So you're not safe even there. You need to act. And maybe, perhaps, you were put there for this time, for such a time as this. So Esther replies and says, Gather the Jews, fast, pray for three days, and then my servants will do the same, and then I will go. And if I perish... I perish. You know, about, as we've read before, there's been some maybe questionable character of Esther's actions. We don't know, but clearly here, we're seeing a woman of courage, a woman of faith, as she's acting out, as she's trusting, as she's going to step forward to try and deliver her people. And she's able to do that because really, the main thing we're seeing today is the last main point, actually second to last, and that is God's control Overall, as we read these portions of Esther, it couldn't be clear that God is controlling every single thing. Without going into the rest of the story, let me briefly summarize what's going to happen next. Because Esther does go before the king, and he lowers his scepter, and she requests, I'd like you and Haman to come to a banquet at my house. Well, they come, and when the king comes, he goes, well, what do you want, Esther? And she goes, well, will you come to one more banquet? On the way home from the first banquet, Haman happens to see Mordecai, and he gets enraged. 
oh, Mordecai. And he goes and he happens to talk to his family that night. And they happen to say, you should build gallows and you should hang him. Well, that night it just happens that the king, he can't sleep. And as he can't sleep, he just happens to ask his men, why don't you read the historical documents? It just happens that they read of the time when Mordecai wasn't rewarded for saving his life. It just happens as he gets to that point, he's thinking, what should I do? Haman comes in. And the king asks Haman, what should I do for the person I want to honor? And boastful, prideful Haman thinks, well, he must be talking about me. So he goes, well, he should be led on the royal horse. And someone should go before him and say, this is what the king does for the one he delights to honor. And the king says, that's great. Go do that for Mordecai. And Haman in shock has to go do this. It just happens as he gets home and tells his family, they go, if this is from the Jews, you have no hope. And before he can do anything else, he's whisked to dinner, the second banquet. And that night, Esther tells the king what's going on and says, who is this? And he says, Haman and the king just happens to go out in the garden. Haman knows he's in trouble. So he goes and as he's going to plead with the king, the king comes back in and he happens to be looking like Haman is trying to attack her. And Haman is sent to hang on his own gallows. All of this happens in the next few nights. Now, all of this is a little ridiculous because none of this happened to happen. And nothing happens to happen in our life. God controls every single detail. Not just of this story, but of our life. There's no, there's no coincidences. No mere coincidences. You know, think about all the minute details that had to play out perfectly in the story. God controlled when, where people sat, where they talked, or else Mordecai wouldn't have overheard their plot. He controlled the night in which the king would not sleep. He controlled what book would be read from. He controlled that it would be abnormal that Mordecai would not be rewarded until this point. He controlled that Haman would walk into the king's court at the exact moment when they finish this story. And we could go on and on with all of the down to the nanosecond precision in this story. One man writes, This pattern of events could only be explained by the unseen hand of a God who is transcendently almighty and yet intimately and personally present to care for his people. The one detail we may miss at first is that Haman cast lots and sent out the decree on the 13th day of the month. The first 13th day of the first month. Now what is the 14th day of the first month? It's the Passover. So the decree of the Jews' destruction went out on Passover Eve, if they had such a thing. You know, just imagine us gathering Christmas Eve to rejoice in our Savior who's come, and our government putting out a law that would cause persecution for us. It would seem ironic. And God in His perfect timing had this decree happen on the night when they should be getting ready to prepare that God delivers His people. Even the day the decree went out was in God's plan. Well, how did they know that was the day? Well, it was by the casting of dice. Haman thought, by magic, I will figure out what to do. But as Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. And there's no coincidence. It didn't just happen by chance that it fell, that, oh, we should do this on the 13th day. God was controlling everything down to the casting of every throw of dice. And we're not guided by chance. 
We're not guided by fate. We don't even control our own destiny. You know, sadly, as Americans, we boast we control our own lives. You can be anything you want to be. And yet it's really ludicrous that we make such statements. You know, let's just think about some of the things that are completely outside of our control. None of us chose our parents. So none of us chose the nurture in which we would be raised or the nature in which we were given. None of us has chosen the economy that's going on around us. And yet the economy affects what choices you have. None of us would choose poor health. And yet cells become cancer. Joints give out and backs and necks leave us crippled, crying for mercy, destroying the plans we thought we would have. You know, we don't even control the weather. All these things that we don't control and then we think, but I have ultimate control of my life. No, we're under God's good hands. He numbers everything, even the hairs on our head. And so don't buy the lie that you control your life. God does. And so don't put your stock in horoscopes. Put your stock in the one who controls all. You know, knocking on wood is not going to keep harm away. Having magical things in your pockets that you rub is not going to cause good things to happen. Speaking positive affirmations over your life will do no good. Karma is not true. God is in control of all things. So trust Him. Take comfort in God's control over all things, even the difficult circumstances of today. And so God's control should fill us with comfort. But as we conclude, I want us to think about, well, how should this comfort us? Because sadly, people often misapply this great truth. And so God's control, it calls us, it comforts and compels us. First, we see that God's control calls us to prayer and honest cries. You know, some wrongly apply God's control of all things, what you could call God's sovereignty, and think that we should take every trial in life with a smile on our face. You know, Mordecai, what did he do? He tore his clothes. He cried out. Jesus, when he was on the cross, cried out. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You don't need to look at whatever crisis is in your life or our nation and glibly say, well, God's in control, so it must be good. There's a world of difference between realizing God works all things together for good and saying that all things are good. There are bad things in this life. Yes, is God in control of them? Yes, that brings comfort. But that does not and should not lead us to glibly go, well, it's good. No, there are many bad things and we should call them bad. But realize even those bad things are in God's hand. And for many, this idea of God's control really seems contradictory. Well, why would we call to him? If he's in control, it doesn't even matter what I do. Why pray? And yet it's because God's in control that we do pray. If he didn't have control... Why would I pray to him at all? You know, imagine my electrical power goes out. I don't call up Arnaldo and go, hey, Arnaldo, my power's out. Well, he'd go, well, have you called Encore yet and told them? I don't have any power over the power. Unless God's in control, there's no reason I would call him, that I'd pray to him. It's only due to the fact that he has control that I go, I'm going to pray to you because you have the power. You are power. And so I reach out to him. So 
We should see God's control and it should compel us to pray. Now to say there's nothing magical about Wednesday night. There's no, no extra oomph of powerful prayer that happens on Wednesday nights. But I would love if we have a, as a people saw the need to gather and fast and pray. Now, if Wednesday doesn't work, would you grab other Christians in this body and say, we need to pray. Could we grab coffee on Thursday morning? Could we gather on Saturday morning? Or I can't do that. But we as a people need to be praying because there are dire situations in our personal lives, in our public lives, and in our national life. And so God's control is calling us, urging us to fast and pray and realize we must go to Him. But often though, Instead of finding comfort in God's control, we despair. But that should lead to the second thing. We should find comfort that God is in control. But for most of us, we do despair. One of my favorite set of books is J.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. And in one of them, there's a character named Frodo. And he has this terrible burden of having to destroy this ring of power. And the, the ring, it weighs him down. It drives him to despair. brings constant misery. And so he says to one of his friends, I wish the ring had never come to me. I wish none of this had ever happened. And his friend replies, So do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to do is just to decide what to do with the time that is given to us. There are other forces that work in this world, Frodo, besides the will of evil. Your uncle was meant to find the ring, in which case you were also meant to have it. And that is an encouraging thought. Maybe like Frodo, you look around, maybe it's your personal life, and you say, I wish that this had never come. I wish none of this had ever happened. Maybe you look at your career path. You look at your current job. You look at your spouse. You look at your children. Maybe you look in the mirror. And as you look around, you're saying, why do I have all this? I wish none of this had ever happened. Well, that's not for us to decide. God has a purpose and a plan. And we can and should take comfort in Him. God has called and placed you, each of us in our unique roles, not many of us in places like Esther, but each of us for such a time as this. We can grow bitter. We can rage. We can get angry. But that doesn't change our situations. Rather, we should take comfort in God's control. Even crying out in distress, saying, God, could you change this? But then still being faithful in the midst of that time. You take comfort that it's not just Esther, but we can also see Joseph. And we can even see the Son of God who were put in horribly wicked situations. And see God's control that He does work all things together for good. Your good and perfect Heavenly Father controls all. And He's put each of you uniquely into the circumstances that you have for such a time as this. And so His control, it calls us to prayer, it comforts us, and lastly, it compels us to courageous action. If all we take from this passage is comfort, God's comfort, then we miss the deep call of this passage. And we can't wrongly apply God's control to say that, well, what I do doesn't matter. You know, the idea that everything is already determined is called determinism. If you've seen the movie Groundhog Day, you've seen this worked out. You know, in the movie, the main character, Phil, 
He wakes up every single day and it's Groundhog Day again. And he wakes up and it's Groundhog Day again. And at first he can't understand it, but then he realizes what's happening. And then the question that is basically posed in the movie is, well, what would you do if you could do anything you wanted and there were no consequences? Because the day just starts all over again the next day. And at first, Phil thinks, this is great. He goes out and he sucker punches this guy he hates. He starts eating all the junk food he can. He starts womanizing. But then he gets despairing because nothing that he does matters. So every day he tries to kill himself because nothing I do matters. And the movie goes on and on. And great movie to watch besides being funny. And it's posing the question, what should we do if nothing matters? And yet that's not what Esther is teaching us. Esther calls people to pray and fast because it matters if they pray and fast. Esther goes before the king because it matters if she goes before the king. You know, God calls us to courageous action. And as well, we need to realize that for most of us, we live in the palace like Esther. If you have air conditioning, like we have right now, to most people in the world, you live in the palace. If you ever find yourself getting bored thinking, I have nothing to do. If your children need to be entertained because there's not enough work in the day just to survive, you live in the palace. If you could go get an education and change your career path, to many people in the world, you live in the palace. Now, maybe not to the people who live to your right and left. To them, you're just another average person. But if you look across time, what people have had, and even people today, we, most of us, live in the palace. Now, the palace is not sinful, but it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity the devil loves to take and make our idol to hold on to these blessings we have. But it's also an opportunity God gives us to bless others with. And like Esther, we are called at times to be willing to give up the palace for the cause of Christ. Your friend of mine was a missionary to India, and now he's a missionary in Australia. And writing about this passage, he writes, Friends, if we're not willing to risk our place in the palace, then the palace is actually a prison. Freedom for us as Christians is being able to risk all to do what God calls us to do with our blessing. But if our place in the palace is more important than God's mission, then the palace has become a prison for us. We can make our place in the palace more important than our Redeemer. We can make it an idol, and idols always enslave. So to apply this to a couple areas, are you willing to give sacrificially to support missionaries and the poor? Is our desire to keep our reputation leading us into sinful actions? Is our desire to keep our reputation keeping our lips sealed when they should be opened? If so, then we might be slaves in what we think is the palace. Like Esther, we might think, but you couldn't call me to that. That's too hard. That's calling me to basically die. And God says, yes, take up your cross and follow me. But we might be thinking, you don't know how much it would cost me to forgive that person. They hurt me so much. You don't know what it would be like to trust you in this situation. That's, I can't trust you now. And yet God says, trust me. Because the wonderful thing about God is he doesn't just say, will y'all be willing to risk your place in the palace? Jesus gave up his place in the palace for us. 
you know, the edict, the irreversible decree of the king, there had actually been one written before that. It said, the wages of sin is death. And it's irreversible. It couldn't be changed. And anyone who really understands the decree realized there's no human hope. Someone is going to have to leave the palace and come down so that that irreversible decree of death might be taken away. And Jesus came down from the palace and he took our place so that the edict, the irreversible edict of death might go on him. And in, in that moment, he says, look, my, my father's in control. So won't you call out to him in his control? Won't you find comfort in him? And in his control, won't you courageously go act to be faithful to him? Let's pray. Oh, Lord, may we find that comfort in you. Lord, may we find that call and be eager to pray, even cry in distress as we look at our own lives, at the lives of our families and the lives of our nation. And Lord, may you impel us to courageous action, not despair, not fear, but courageous action because you are good and in control. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.